Let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 11. We have been going verse by verse through the book of Mark for several years now, and it's been a few months since we've done that as we've been going over different topical messages. And I like to go back and forth between topical messages and uh, verse by verse. And so it takes quite a while, but I love to just open the scripture to see what God wants to say through his revealed word. And I was thinking in worship, what a privileged people we are that in the midst of a culture that has been rejecting God for gosh, 50 or 60 years here in America, that every week we get the ultimate source of sanity, which is the ultimate source of wisdom in God's word. And what what a honor it is to teach God's word to you. And I hope you see church as an honor. I mean, you you get a chance to have an escape, um, an escape to get a divine touch from God so you can go down from the mountaintop and live for Jesus throughout the week. So, so we, we are honored and blessed people today to get to be in his word. So we'll be in Mark chapter 11. And I want you to go ahead and find it in your Bibles or on your phones because I want us to get in the habit of, of doing that and we won't have it on the screen. And then subsequent support verses we will as we journey along. Today I'm gonna to talk about this. I'm gonna talk about fruitless Christianity. Fruitless Christianity. Let's go ahead and read starting with verse 12. The next day when they came out from Bethany, he was hungry. After seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Verse 14, he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. Now, we'll skip down to verse 20. Next week, we'll talk about Jesus cleansing the temple because he did this uh, preceding his cleansing of the temple. So these stories are connected. Now we go to verse 20. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. An unusual story, but the Lord's going to give us revelation today. Let's pray. God, uh, in your wisdom and sovereign will, you preserve this story that you told your disciples and this uh, very odd message that you gave. But God, we know that you're going to make it truth to us today. So Lord, help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was in college, I went on a mission trip with my church to Mexico, to Monterey, Mexico. It was a really, really difficult trip. We, we just had a lot of challenges with the church we were working at. They were a little bit unorganized, and it was just physically demanding. And so whenever things are physically demanding, of course, the youth group guys, the college guys are the ones that get the brunt of all of that. So we had to multiple times a day carry the sound system to a rooftop. Rain would come in. We'd have to carry it back down. Often uh, the pastors were not on time to where we needed to be. It was hot. It was just a tough trip. We knew that on the way back, we would be stopping in San Antonio. 
And this was 1994, and I don't really know the history of cheesecake, but I do know this, is that cheesecake was a big deal in 1994. It was before Sam's had those packaged cheesecakes that we all buy now, and, and the, I guess from the Northeast, cheesecake was starting to come into Texas, and so like it was a big deal. Uh, I know it's hard for some of us to imagine that, but to have a piece of cheesecake was exciting. We knew that on our way back from Mexico, we would stop at the Riverwalk, and there was a particular restaurant there that everyone said, our youth leader especially said, it's the best cheesecake outside of New York City. So as we went about this mission trip, and difficult times came, and tiring times came, and it was hot, and it was irritating, uh, we, we developed this little phrase, cheesecake is almost here, cheesecake is coming. Uh, something 19-year-old boys would get excited about. And so this was a way to motivate each other. On the way home from the trip, it took us longer to get back than we expected. Had to spend some time getting across the border. So we're getting into San Antonio about the time restaurants close. So we park downtown. We go down to the Riverwalk. We're kind of navigating in between all the tourists. We're running a little bit, which is something a 19-year-old would do again, running for cheesecake through the Riverwalk. River I, I apologize now to all tourists who were there. That was just stupid. But anyway, we're doing that anyway, and, and we're running, and we get to the restaurant, and the hostess informs us the restaurant closed five minutes ago. After all that anticipation, after that being the carrot at the end of our trip. So our youth leader went into negotiation skills and started using those. And he convinced them to go into the back to find us a cheesecake, to bring it out. He said, just bring a whole cheesecake out and bring five forks. We'll just eat it. We don't even have to cut it up. So that happened, and it was exciting. I mean, this was great. I've never anticipated something so much in my life. I mean, this was just exciting. And so I'm not exactly a connoisseur of cheesecake at that time. Since then, okay, maybe I am now. But uh, I took one bite of it, and honestly, just wasn't that great but I didn't want to disappoint everyone else. I didn't want to be the killjoy. I didn't want to be the guy who was negative. And then someone else took a bite and said, you know what I like about this restaurant's cheesecake? It's, it's not very sweet. And then I, I thought the same thing. Then finally, the next person realized, it's not sweet at all because we didn't get cheesecake. We just got a pie full of cream cheese. No one had put the sugar in it. Rightly deserved for being punks on the Riverwalk anyway. So we laughed about that. And it was disappointing. I thought about that story when I was thinking about Jesus after a long time of ministry, seeing this tree from a distance. And he sees the tree anticipating that it has fruit. And it doesn't have fruit. And so he curses the tree. Now, at first read, that sounds like a ridiculous story. But we know this, is that Jesus was not impulsive. He was God himself. So this was not about Jesus being mad at the tree. This was about Jesus sending a very clear message. And a very clear message was to the Jewish people, his chosen people, the Israelites. All through the Old Testament, the vine, the fig tree, was used as a symbolic representation of God's people. And so what Jesus did is he took a sermon and put it into the ultimate action. 
He came up to a tree that was supposed to be producing fruit and, and gave the illusion of fruit. And when there wasn't fruit, he cursed that tree. And we find out that the tree died from the root up. And then what he was saying was this. This was a physical demonstration. And he said, I came to my people, my people who had my word, my people who had my favor, my people who were custodians of my presence. And they were supposed to be producing fruit. But when I got a close look, it was just an illusion of fruit. There was no fruit really there. Now, have you guys ever had one of those days? I know you have. When you didn't sleep well the night before. So because you didn't fall asleep at a proper time, you woke up late. And then your clothes weren't really ready to go. They weren't really picked out, ironed, ready to, ready to, to look presentable. Then you get in the car and you're rushing out the door with coffee and you spill some coffee on your shirt. I know if you've ever worked with me or been around me, that never happens to me, right, Abby? Right? Uh, I have a real problem with that. So you spill coffee on your shirt. Then you get stuck behind that train, you know, the one on Old Shackle? Satan sends that train at just the wrong time to torment our souls. You're stuck behind the train. You get to work late. You find out when you get to work, you've forgotten an assignment. There are just days like that. I, did, I forgot to tell you, you fought with the family at breakfast. That happens too. It's just a bad day. You just, just want to forget it. But then occasionally, occasionally you have one of those days, you get eight hours of sleep picked out your clothes the night before and you like what you picked out. You have this magical breakfast with your spouse that as you take bite of your, your wholesome oatmeal, you gaze into each other's eyes and pray. You don't even have to pray. You pray with your eyes because you're just so in tune with God. You beat your boss to work. I mean, and then you're not just on top of your assignments you're ahead. I mean, you're punching that day in the face. You're on top of it. It feels good, doesn't it? When that happens, it feels real good. Part of the reason it feels good is because we have a lot of those other days, right? They don't feel so good. Here, here's what I want you to remember. The reason I think it feels good when we're on top of it is, here's your first point today, is that we were made for fruitfulness, we were created for fruitfulness. Even before the curse came and before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve were assigned work in the garden to be productive people, to have dominion over God's earth, to have dominion over creation, to carefully partner with God for the maintaining of this planet, to care for the creatures to be productive, to have their work glorify God so at the end of the day, they would have satisfying fellowship with God because they had been fruitful and they had been productive. That's who you have been designed to be. Every single one of us have been designed and created to be fruitful for God. And that's why those days when we're being fruitful, when we're seeing the fruit of our labor, those days when we're seeing God do great things, it just feels right. And if we're able to stay humble and give God the credit, 
If we're able not to fall into the trap of pride, we can just feel the sense of fruitfulness that is good and that God created us. It's like when God created the world itself after every day, he just said, it's good. It's good. And, and we need more days like that where we just say, man, this was a good day. God helped me. I don't take pride in myself, but God has helped me. God's developed me as a leader, as a manager. God's developed me as, a, as someone who's running a home, who's running a business, as running a classroom, whatever it is. It, it, I'm being fruitful for the Lord. Matthew 3.8 talks about this call we have. Jesus said this, therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance. You know, when we turn away from sin and turn away from God, fruit should come in our lives. If we're walking with the Lord, there should be spiritual fruit into our lives. It's a call to fruitfulness. It's not just, this is not a salvation issue. We're saved through grace. And, and Jesus settles that. Jesus settles our eternal destiny. And so then now the battle is for our fruitfulness. Will we be the men and women God has called us to be? Will we be fruitful? Will we be productive? Or will Jesus come and test our lives and, we, and test who we are and not see the fruit that he wants? This is the question before us. I believe the full scope of scripture calls us to this unique salvation by grace that comes by him alone. And now the battle is not for our salvation. The battle is for our potential. Until the day that we stand before God, between now and then, the issue of heaven and hell may be settled, but the issue of us living according to the will of God and being the fruitful people, it's a daily battle. That's why Jesus said, daily take up your cross and follow me. We have to develop ourselves Present ourselves to the Lord. Be under his presence. Be under his ruling to be fruitful. One of the things I love about international travel, I do that every two or three years. I'll go to have the opportunity to go to a country. And one of the great things about international travel is getting to taste the different fruits. Now, most of the time, I'm presented a fruit and I can't pronounce it. It feels different in texture, both with my hands and in my mouth. But when I taste it, even though I can't describe it to you even now, even though I can't pronounce it, I know what fruit is. I know the difference between fruits and veggies because fruit just is sweet, right? So let me ask you this. What is spiritual fruit in your life? I suggest to you, you know exactly what spiritual fruit is in your life. Now, I could have taken a concordance and lift up the word fruit and come up with, here's a list of spiritual fruit. And I did that to some degree. And it is true. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. That's in Galatians. We know that the fruit of our lips is praise. So when our mouths are filled with praise, that's a fruit. We know that the way we talk is a fruit in our lives, but we could go on and suggest a lot of different things, different souls that we lead people to Christ, that's fruit in our lives. Fruitfulness has multiple definitions. I don't think we have to struggle with what's the list of all the different ways to be fruitful in the Lord. It's, you know a fruit when you taste a fruit, do you not? And you know what the fruit is in your life. 
Do you know that if the presence of Jesus is resting on you, resting in you, working its way out of you, you know what type of fruit it's gonna be in your life. And I'm gonna tell you this, that's what God's called you to. He's not called you, he has not called you to be an empty, shallow, hollow Christian. He wants fruit in your life. This is what this is about. We have fruit. We wanna be fruitful Christians so that the Lord purposes may manifest in our lives. We want to be Christians that Jesus can crown with his rewards because once he does that, I don't know about you, but I want to have something to lay at his feet. I don't want to lay at his feet lost opportunity. I don't want to lay at his feet untapped potential. I don't want to lay at his feet slothfulness and laziness. I don't want to lay at his feet lukewarm Christianity. I want to lay at his feet all the fruit that he wants, the crowns that he wants, the crowns that only he can give me. We are called to fruitfulness. And that's why I sense God spoke to me last summer to call his people to spiritual maturity. We're not just called to assemble a crowd. I'm gonna tell you this because to God's glory, last Sunday, we had a record non-Easter attendance at this church. To God's glory. But you know what? I wanna keep growing. I wanna fill up every seat. I want to do everything to the glory of God, but I want mature, fruitful Christians that are doing the Lord's will because when we're mature in the Lord, when we're rooted, when we're fruitful, that's what's going to change the world. Pure entertainment, the accumulations of mass just for earthly pride won't change a culture, but God's people living by God's word, living in God's ways, doing God's bidding, doing God's work, that can change a generation. That can change the world. Listen, revival is possible. Revival can happen. What's it gonna look like? I don't know because it's gonna be different than anything we've ever seen before. But our God is faithful. And if we, by his people, become people of prayer and people of discipline and people of faithfulness and people who say no to sin and yes to him, it's gonna change our nation. You know what's the greatest thing about not having hope anymore in our political process and not having hope with our government, not having hope with all the things we put our trust in? in our education system, is now all we have left is Jesus. We may be in the best position we've ever been because we won't rely on earthly and worldly perspectives. And we have to be desperate, desperate for his touch, desperate for his, his uh, appearance, desperate for his manifestation, desperate for his word to come in new ways. Here's the second part of this, second observation. We can often give the illusion, here's your next blank, of fruitfulness from a distance. This is the problem with American Christianity that for the last 35 years has been commercialized to the point that scalpers are making money off our worship. I don't say that to criticize that. I say that as an observation that it's very easy, easy to give the illusion of fruitfulness and not have any real fruit. Jesus saw this tree that had no doubt been geographically positioned in a way to show premature foliage. And he was trying to make a point that from a distance, you see that tree and because the tree earlier, it was right after the Passover, it was a couple of months before it was supposed to be showing foliage and fruit. And he was saying, now here we are, and from a distance, 
It looks like it's going to be a fruitful tree. I can just imagine being in Jerusalem at that time that the sophistication of worship had come to the point where there were professional Sadducees and Pharisees and you had a whole culture of people who spent all their time arguing over what the Torah said and you had some people who followed this rabbi and some people the other rabbi and some people another rabbi and this group, they, they were bound to this part of the law but this group was free from this part of the law. Is this sounding kind of familiar all of a sudden? Okay, you know, we have, we have all our little groupings and all our little pop culture pastors that we follow and all of our little different um, um, theological nuances that we argue about. And then on top of that, and we'll, we'll discuss this more next week, uh, the commercialism uh, among that day had become so sophisticated and developed that merchants were actually in the temple courts making money off worshipers. Is this sounding familiar to you? And it just looks so fruitful. I mean, it just looks so good. A whole culture was deceived and not following the ways of God. But uh, the, the religious practice had become so sophisticated and so advanced and so commercialized that everyone was just stuck in a system. And Jesus said, look, you see that it looks fruitful from afar, but you get up close, there's no fruit. Now, evidently, Fig trees in this part of the world uh, would give kind of a first fruit. They, they may give like a pre-fruit. And I'm not a botanist, so I'm not going to try to explain this further. But from my studies, I've seen this not in botany. This is in Bible commentaries. From my studies in Bible commentaries, the, the people would maybe eat this first fruit, this pre-fruit, before the full fruitfulness came in. But here's the deal. For this particular tree, it didn't show the pre-fruit, and so that meant it would not produce the real fruit. This was a, this was a reality. This was a reality of, of the agriculture. This was a reality of, of that part of the world. So it is Jesus saw this tree that gave an illusion of fruit, but it didn't give the first fruits, and he said it's not going to be fruitful ever. And he made that judgment. And what he was saying was this, is the old system, what we now call the Old Testament. And we love the Old Testament, but I'm talking about the law. Being able to make yourself righteous with God through the right sacrifice and the right procedure. And then the Pharisees added on top of the law of Moses, things were not even God inspired, rules upon rules upon rules upon rules. And people were doomed people were doomed because all the rules did is let us know our imperfection. All the rules did is let us know where we were missing the mark. And Jesus said, there's no fruit in that. It looks good. Rules seem effective. And every other religion in the world says, you follow these steps and you'll make it to heaven. That's what every other religion in the world does and says. And here it was too. Judaism before Christ came said the same thing. It measured short. So God came in the form of Jesus and Jesus said, listen, listen, there's a better way. You, you, the way you're doing now, it's, it's fruitless. It's fruitless, but I paid the price for you. I, I, am, I am going, I have gone, I'm going to pay the price for you. And now we hear that he has paid the price for us today. 
So it is that we don't have to live with unfulfilled promise. I think that's the greatest battle for our lives. This premature tree showed the promise of fruit from the distance early in the season. But when you got up close, there was no fruit. This is a great warning to us for those of us who have opportunity. And that's all of us. For those of us who have advantages, we're educated, we have access to resources, we have disposable time, we have shelter. Most of us, I hope all of us, know where our next meal is coming from. Guys, with that's responsibility. To seek first the kingdom like we talked about last week. To, to put Christ first. To make sure he's supreme. He's number one. This keyboard's a pretty amazing machine, isn't it? In fact, there are literally hundreds of sounds you can program in here. That's why I never touch it. The only thing I do is move it. I move it from there to here, there to here. Don't play it. Don't touch it. Don't do anything. But I know this. As sophisticated as this keyboard is, it better be playing in a few minutes. See this right here? If I unplug it, there's nothing she can do with it. She can't reprogram it. She can't play it. Sound won't come through those speakers above us. Because as great as this is created, unless it's plugged into electricity, it's meaningless. All it is is a decoration. All it is is something that is taking up space. Here's the last point I want to make. We can lose our fruitfulness without connection to Jesus. Guys, it doesn't matter how talented we are. It doesn't matter how many skills we have, how much education, how much money. It doesn't matter uh, what our nationality is, what our skills are. If we're, we're not plugged into Jesus, we don't give the kind of fruit. We don't produce the kind of fruit he wants. It's all about connectivity. It's all about him. It's all about his presence. Because I know at the beginning of the sermon, there can be a lot of pressure. Oh, no, I'm not being fruitful. I'm not doing enough. I'm not, I'm not doing enough. The doing we do, the actions we do is a response to his presence. We dwell first. We dwell with him. We're in relationship with him. We abide in him. We spend time with him. And then we naturally begin to produce the fruit that he wants Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 through 20 says this, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Are figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit. Neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. I can just tell you this, and you know this is true too. You will know when someone spent time with Jesus. You just know. You just know. I've heard some of the greatest communicators, Christian communicators in the world entertain and 
do things skillfully as communicators. And it was no sense of God's anointing on it. It may have been enjoyable. It may have been a good motivational talk, but there was no life change. There was no anointing. There was no uh, gospel in it. There was no Jesus-centered teaching. There, there, was a, there was no power to their words. And some of those same people I've discovered later on that their lives weren't right with God for a long period of time. No doubt, speakers, singers, we all, we all carry our sinfulness with us when we minister. But this is a lifestyle, a lifestyle of not ministering with God. So though they were talented, they weren't fruitful. They weren't producing the fruit. And then I, I have heard teenagers and people with speech impediments and people who have no experience in public speaking in humility and humility, share God's word with the richness of time with him. And you just have a sense that they've been with God. What a gift we share when we've been with God. This is not for public speaking either. More importantly is daily conversation. More importantly is the relationship and family gatherings that we have and business meetings that we have and sales appointments that we go to and practices that we participate in for those of you involved in athletics, for plays we practice for and band rehearsal. The presence of God marks us in those places. It marks us with fruit we can't produce ourselves. And you can just tell when someone's been with Jesus. John chapter 15, verse four and five says this. This is Jesus speaking. Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says you can do nothing without me? You can do nothing of spiritual significance. There's no doubt that many men and women have accomplished great things in the world, things that we admire, things that we even honor but the eternal things, the things that will be honored in heaven, the true fruit that matters, it doesn't happen without the presence of Jesus. That's what I want for you guys. I want you to be fruitful Christians, Jesus-centered people, Jesus-connected people. And what would happen if you and I made a relationship with Jesus a priority, discovering his character through his word because that's a primary way that we learn who God is, is through the scripture. And taking time to pray, taking time to enjoy his presence, taking time to just allow worship music just to wash over us and to wash away kind of the filth that kind of gets on us where Satan has 
had his dominion and the spirit of the world just gets on us, the spirit that's not from God. Instead, in his presence, there's a washing. In his presence, there's a renewing. In his presence, there's a refreshing. Can I tell you that purity comes from within? Purity comes from within. And that when we begin to, to seek his presence, there's a new purity that rises up within us. I, I, I believe this is that purity and the desire for God's presence is the answer to, to the different debates we have. Is this right? Is this wrong? Is this right? Is this wrong? Is this what the Bible says? Is this what the Bible doesn't say? You know, if we just seek his presence, his presence will lead us to the truth. His presence will lead us how to interpret the Bible rightly because it's his spirit that breathed on the scripture in the first place. So his spirit gives illumination to the scripture. And his, his spirit is what makes the scripture life to us. And, and the Holy Spirit is what makes the things of God appealing to you. So some of God's ways and some, some of God's uh, standards are not appealing to us now. But if you begin to seek his presence, it will begin to change you. Purity will start from the inside out. It all starts with him. Uh, behavioral modification uh, trying to change our actions. We can take steps to do that. We can take action steps to do that and that will produce some change, limited change. But what we, we what really changes is transformation from the inside out. When God begins to change our nature, where areas that we were chained, now we're free. Where areas that were dark are now light. Jesus said this, that we are new creatures in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. Without Christ, you know, we are we are fatherless, but with Christ, we're adopted. Without Christ, we are nameless, but with Christ, we have a name. There is a transformation. There is a conversion. There is a new man, a new woman that God is making by his spirit. And that, that will make up the years Satan has stolen from you. Some of you feel like, I wish I would have heard. I wish I'd been more disciplined when I was younger. I wish that I would have taken certain steps at an earlier time in my adulthood. I wish I wouldn't have made those mistakes that have marked my life. And I understand that, that those things mark us and, and they stay with us. But here's the great thing is by God's spirit, when he begins to transform you, he can do one. He can do more with a transformation than you could ever do in a lifetime. He can change your spirit. He can change you from the inside out. He can change the essence of who you are. This is the hope we have. This is the hope we have that something dynamic, something from heaven, something above, something outside of ourselves can come in and make a difference. And that's why John Newton wrote this amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Well, that sounds nice. Yeah, I saved a wretch like me. This was a man who was born into the slave trade and spent his early life enslaving other human beings in the most dreadful, hor hor horrible thing that's happened on this planet. And John Newton, John Newton propagated that. John Newton made money off of that. John Newton, that's who he was. But he was broken and he was changed by Christ. And then he was able to say, a wretch like me, as Paul said, the worst of sinners, there's a change, there's a transformation. God has done what I cannot do myself. I wanna invite our ushers to begin to position themselves because today's a special Sunday on this special Sunday that we share the Lord's table together. And so most every Sunday we offer communion and it's often taking place in kind of separate silos 
maybe by individuals or a youth group will gather or different people, but this is when we take it in unity and unison. And I want you to know this, you do not have to take communion. There's various reasons why you may choose not to take communion. And